Hi everyone, I'm Ben Tapper and this is Invisible Truths. This is a podcast for anyone who carries burdens that feel too heavy to bear, questions too vulnerable to openly discuss, or pain that you're certain no one else will understand. Even more than that though, this is a space to acknowledge and explore the invisible truths within each of us. If you're still interested, let's get started. Before we jump into this week's episode, I just want to take a moment and ask you for two short favors. The first is that you go on iTunes and leave a rating and a five-star review for this podcast. That is the quickest way for new listeners to find this content, and I really believe that in a time like this, people need to hear inspirational stories. So please take a moment, leave a rating and a review so new listeners can find this content. The second is that if you have been a loyal listener or if even if you just stumbled upon this podcast and you appreciate the content, I want to encourage you to become Patreon members. Now, I know a lot of folks are out of work, and so um, if that's you, I'm not talking to you right now, but if you have maintained your employment status and you've got a stable income and you appreciate the content that I'm putting out, please consider becoming a Patreon member. There are two tiers, a $3 tier and a $7 tier, and each tier gives you access to unique content like special interviews with the podcast guests, monthly inspirational videos, and personalized motivational content just for you specifically. So take a moment, check out my Patreon, which I have linked on all my social media accounts, and consider supporting this podcast. Right now I'm putting it out there for free or actually at a cost to me, and I would love to be able to have a little bit of support. That way I can continue to do this work and to prioritize it. All right, enough with the fun stuff, I know. Now let's jump into a wonderful episode with Latinx Parenting. Hello everyone, I'm Ben Tapper and welcome back to another week of Invisible Truths. This week I am here with Leslie Arreola Hillenbrand. She's a first generation Chicana mother to three biracial children, ages 8, 2, and 11 months. She's the founder of Latinx Parenting, which is a bilingual organization rooted in social justice and children's rights. Uh, it's also centered around the ongoing practice of nonviolence toward ourselves and others and intergenerational healing and community wellness for Latinx families. As a new parent myself, I'm really intrigued and um, becoming an increasing fan of Leslie's work and the work of Latinx Parenting, so I am super thrilled that you took the time to join us today, Leslie. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Is there anything you want to add about who you are or your identities before we jump into the uh, meat of the interview? I think that about covers it for now. Um, I'm also a mother in quarantine right now. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Always adds another wrinkle to everyone's life. Yes, absolutely. Wonderful. Um, So let's uh, just jump in and start talking about Latinx parenting. We have a a brief idea of what it does, but can you you shed some light on how it got started and, and what drove you to launch this organization? Yeah. So as you had mentioned, I'm a Chicana mother, um, and that means that my parents were born in Mexico. Um, My mother was born in a very rural part of Mexico. It's actually called El Pueblito de Allende, which is the little town of Allende. Like it doesn't actually even have a name. Um, And my father was born in Colima and grew up in Guadalajara. And so they both immigrated here back in the 70s. um, And we were born, I was born in the 80s. And, um, you know, I feel like when we talk about parenting and when we talk about um, the way that parents raise their children, it's not frequent that we hear the stories of immigrant parents. And it's not frequent that we hear um, the very distinct stories and narratives of immigrant parents who come from um, Latino America or, or Mexico. And so I found myself when I was pregnant really trying to 
find information, resources that resonated with my particular story, and I wasn't really able to hear that or, or to find that. Um, and so through, you know, I, I learned a lot about how to parent, and I'm, I'm using that like, you know, in quotes, and also started realizing that in order to engage with my children in a way that felt good to me, I really had to re-engage with myself um, and my own upbringing. And so that kind of started me on this journey of healing myself, um, reparenting myself, and I'm sure we'll talk more about that in a little bit. But I really wanted to provide a platform for other people and other families like myself that don't see their stories um, in your traditional like parenting world. And so that's kind of what Latinx parenting was born out of. And I really feel like I had like a thunderbolt strike me one day. I know that it's, it sounds super cheesy, but I really do feel like I had this thunderbolt strike me um, that was like Latinx parenting and, and really wanting to own that. Um, you know, our stories are valuable. Our stories are unique. Our stories are not monolithic. Um, and wanting to really provide that support and also be a recipient of that support from my community. I'm glad you mentioned that they're not monolithic. Um, I, I was, as you were talking, just struck as I was thinking through uh, all the people in my life that I know that consider themselves Latinx um, and just the, the wide variety of cultures that, that they come from and the wide variety of identities that are represented under that crazy umbrella title. Um, and so for listeners that may not be as familiar, can you just touch on some of the, the variation and variety that, that may be present uh, within the Latinx community? Yeah, absolutely. And I do want to also say that even in Mexican culture, like there's so much diversity, right? Like I was mentioning that my mom is from a northern part of Mexico that's very rural and agricultural, and my dad is more of like a city guy. Mm. Um, and so just even between those two cultures is a world of difference. And so I do want to honor that there are different paths and different um, identifications, even within the title of Latinx. Um, we've gotten some challenge too, a lot from um, like cis heterosexual, like cis males have an issue with the term Latinx, mm. which is really interesting that the pushback that we've received has been really from um, people who don't understand the X at the end. And so that is really just to be inclusive of um, people who don't consider themselves within that binary. Um, for people who don't know that may be listening, I, I really want to just make that clear that that's what that's about. And yeah, there's just so much diversity. There's so much richness and color and flavor to every family that's within this bigger Latinx family. And also I want to share that we do have a very common um, history in terms of our colonial, the colonialism that we experienced, the conquest that we experienced as a people. A lot of us have lost a lot of the indigenous relationship that we had with each other with the land and so I think that through the work of Latinx parenting through the work that I'm seeing a lot of people doing that we're really trying to reclaim a lot of what was lost and so you know identifying as Latinx is people will say well that's a colonialist term right like the Latino Latina that's a colonialist term and for me it's like we're actually reclaiming things that were lost, we're reclaiming stories and a history that was lost, and we are engaging in this new identification of what it means to be Latinx. Um, and so it's unique, you know, it's unique to me, it's unique to anybody else who can identify in it. And I think that's the beauty of it is that we can be that richness and we can be that flavor 
fulfill within that. Yeah. And, and at some point, like we have to use some language, right? And so unfortunately, uh, when you come from a culture and a people that has been colonialized and, and marginalized, a lot of the language you have, yes, will have begun in some form of colonialism. Um, but yeah. to, to reclaim it uh, means to like name that we are rooted or you are rooted in a common story, right? A common history to some degree. And I, and right. I think... Um, I think that can get lost sometimes when people want to get too picky about what language is or isn't used. We, we forget what we're trying to communicate and name as a collective. Yeah, yeah. I've, I've tried not to get into online arguments about this because it could just go like really south, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, but we have definitely seen people that have come on and criticized um, even just calling ourselves Latinx, you know, and, and have tried to push more towards a claiming of indigeneity However, I feel that if I were to claim my indigeneity while not actually being a part of an indigenous culture that is still alive, there's problems with that, that, um, that I just don't, you know, I'm not ready really to, to claim myself as an indigenous person because I'm not one. Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate that. Um, can, can you, can we talk about, uh, how Latinx parenting does its work? How do you accomplish your goals? How do you educate folks? Sure. Um, So back in 2013, I was trained as a parent educator by a woman named Ruth Beagle-Hole, and her whole framework has been parenting through the lens of nonviolence. And so we call it parenting with nonviolence um, or nonviolent parenting. And so after I was trained um, by her, I really just, I really felt called to start this movement to give the tools that I started to have to other people. Um, and so I was able to work, I was blessed and privileged to be able to work with hundreds of families through the Child Abuse Prevention Center here in Orange County, California. Um, and I worked with a lot of Latinx families. I worked with people in um, transitional homes. I worked with teen moms. And so I really was able to get this really wide, um, vast experience of different families and and the different experiences that families have. Um, But what I found is that nonviolence is really palatable and really universal. So what I came to realize was that this concept of nonviolence is very accessible to not just Latinx families, not just teen moms. I really feel like it's a practice not only of how to parent, but how we want to show up for ourselves. Um, And the majority of us have some level of wounds and traumas from our childhoods. And so I think that the, the, I guess, like bait for parents sometimes is like, you're going to teach me how to fix my kids, right? Like you're going to teach me, people come to parenting classes and they're like, oh my gosh, I'm I'm struggling. I'm really struggling and, and challenged by these behaviors. And what we realize from this process of self reflection. Um, which is rooted in nonviolence, is that we have to be empathetic towards ourselves first in order to be able to provide that for our children. And so the practice really is of reparenting ourselves um, in ways that we want to parent our children. But if we're not practicing those same empathetic behaviors with us, then it's going to be really, really difficult to be able to offer that to our children. And I think that that concept is really universal. Um, And that's something that, you know, really strikes me, I think, about the curriculum that we use and about the modality is that it's not, you know, and if you do A plus B, it's going to equal C, because we have this level of understanding that every every family is so unique, 
You know, every story is so unique. And at the same time, this concept of self-empathy is applicable for every human being, Mm. you know, and that's really what this is grounded in. Um, And so I, the work that, that we do is always going to honor the parent's journey and all of the narratives around that, you know, so we talk about colonialism, we talk about how a lot of our parental behaviors have actually been adaptations from conquest. Um, and so even, even, you know, religion, even if we talk about um, where does this concept of unconditional honoring of mother and father, where does that come from? You know, it comes from Christianity. And let's talk about why we're even practicing Christianity. Like you can't negate the history. It's so present, you know, it's always present in our relationship to our children and to ourselves. All of these narratives, we can hold all of those narratives while still trying to reclaim and trying to implement these practices that maybe are new to us, but we're not new to our ancestors who did honor children, who did consider children to be teachers, you know? And so that's actually still very present in many indigenous cultures. We just have to look to them for guidance, you know? And and these concepts are, again, they, you know, we've gotten criticism like, oh, this is white people shit. (laughs) like like, you're not gonna tell me how to tell you know how to be kind to my kids I'm gonna take out my chunkla or whatever and it's like no that's that's actually what people that colonized our culture want us to do is to oppress our children because it makes them easier to oppress us as a people Mm -hmm. we are doing that to our children you know and I say this as a Latina woman and I say this as um, somebody who's in relationship with a lot of black parents as well mm-hmm. is that we have this this relationship with like our oppressors right and and we engage in trauma bonding a lot of times because that's also community but it's like how can we move beyond this self-oppression mm-hmm. right like how can we move beyond it um, and really engage with joy and with playfulness and with all of these really beautiful experiences with our children so that we can move beyond that oppression, you know, yeah. and actually be liberated. Yeah, I, uh, I've i experienced something similar. You know, anytime I mention uh, the fact that my, my wife and I don't plan on spanking, you know, our, our children or our child at all, you know, ever, we get this reaction like, What? why or yeah that's some white people bullshit (laughs) Mm -hmm. um, and and i think um you 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 named something important right to to, we have to examine the narratives and the stories we hold to examine doesn't always mean that you tear down or reject but to at least look and ask where it came from right and so Mm -hmm. uh, you know the question that i hold is who told you that parenting had to include violence right or this type of violence you know and and i think it's it's just really critical that we we get curious and we wonder about where these stories come from. If yeah. you, it's easy to to look back just far enough to assume that it's natural to our our uh, melanin and natural to our culture. But if yeah. we keep looking back further and we remember our history of colonization and racism and subjugation, a lot of our own stories got erased. A lot of stories got imported into our culture, and a lot of it is a trauma adaptation. We've got to unpack that to really yeah. kind of step into our fullness, I think, as parents. But 
That's some hard work. Yeah. Yeah. It's the hardest work. It's the hardest work. And that's why I honor, you know, every time we, I come into contact with parents, I'm just like, you are doing some brave work right now. This is bravery. This is vulnerability. Like there's nothing braver than being vulnerable and saying, yes, this is my intergenerational trauma, but there's nothing more empowering than saying, now I'm going to heal that. I'm going to break that cycle, you know, and it is a question of where did that story come from, but also who is still profiting, Mm. you know, like who is still profiting. And when I oppress my children in these ways, and when I tell them not to have a voice, and when I tell them that they have to respect authority, who profits from that, you know, and how can I break that so that my children can actually grow up and thrive in ways that yes are privileged but now they're wielding their privilege to really uplift their own people yeah those are such great questions um and i I think about all the instances in our society where it benefits the the person or the group in power um for the people they're over to not question right um whether you're talking about like a one-on-one relationship where there might be some sort of abuse taking place or um, a governmental relationship, you know, is as our world churns and burns, mm-hmm. uh, I, I find myself thinking more and more about what kind of world will be left for my son Kimani, you know, when he starts to come of age, right? What will it look like? And how do I equip him for whatever world that will be? And I, I really believe I can't have him believing authority needs to be followed just because it's an authority, just because someone says so. I, I need him to understand the importance of questioning uh, any authority that might counteract his own self-worth, his own sense of identity, his own sense of power, um, while also recognizing when other people's power is being stripped away. But but it, it's hypocritical to, to instill that and then expect him to just I'll always have to listen to me just because I'm dad or just because I say so or, or to assume I have control over his body. You know, like... We have to orient our children towards the external world uh, in a way, but if we're not doing that same orientation internally or within the family, um, there's, there's, there can be some, some confusion, some mixed messaging, right, that, that, yeah. that sets them up for maybe failure or at least danger later. At least that's what I'm thinking. How does that land with you? Yeah, I think that it does create a disconnect, you know, if we're telling our children, you need to stand up to your bullies, you know, but at the same time, we're engaging in a lot of bullying behaviors then how is that message going to really sink in? You know, am I allowing my child to say no to me? Am I allowing my child to stand up for, for their rights? Am I allowing them to, um, to really state what their needs are? Am I empowering them to tell me what their needs are and to tell me when I'm out of line? You know, my eight-year-old daughter is really good at being my mirror and saying like, mom, you're being violent right now. Mm. <laughs> you know, <laughs> And that's like... The, I have to really sit with whether my reaction to that comes from the alignment that I want to have with the way that I want to parent, or does it come from the wounds that were instilled in me from my own childhood? You know, because I could easily say, you need to shut up and you need to turn around and don't talk to me like that because you're being disrespectful. Or I can say, you're right, I am being violent right now. And you're right, there is a need of mine that is not being met and you are not responsible to meet that need. And so I need to be responsible. And again, it goes back to that, that bravery and that vulnerability of, yes, I'm gonna own my behaviors. And in owning my behaviors, not only am I meeting my own needs now, but I'm modeling for you 
what it means to own your behaviors and what it means to meet your own needs. And so um, even now, sometimes she'll say like, I just really need space. And I'm like, I, I feel you like go take your space. We've never put her in a timeout. She's put herself in timeouts, you know, um, or she has been able to say like, I need connection. And granted, she's eight years old. Um, but this stuff, I mean, like if people are like, does this actually work? You know? <laughs> yeah, it actually really does. It actually really does. The challenge is how do we now cope with having empowered children? <laughs> You know, because it's easy. It's easy when they're toddlers, you know, when they're toddlers and we're able to kind of sit with these big feelings. And um, she was on her own for five and a half years. And so it was very easy for me to to sit there and wait for her to have these really big feelings. And now that she's eight and I have two other children, the challenge is different. You know, am I still able to hold those feelings? Am I still able to give her that empowerment or am I telling her more often than not? I think sometimes in quarantine, like it's kind of hard. Um, but it's real life, you know, I, I really want to stay in alignment and she actually, I mean, I could show you the list that she made me of mama when you're angry, I'll, I'll show you after this interview, but after, um, she experienced me being violent, she said, mama, I'm going to make you a list of all the ways that you can calm down, you know, and on there is like, you need to take some deep breaths. You need to do some yoga. And I haven't done yoga for like a long time. (laughs) (laughs) But she's aware, like, mama is just regulated, you know? And so, I mean, I think through this work, too, we've, we've been able to give parents tools, and, and I've been able to have the tools to be able to name her stories with her um, and to really check in with her and say, is this how you're experiencing this situation? And if it's not, then please, you know, let me know. Let me help you with the vocabulary to really name it. And um, now she makes, you know, we have this tool called empathy books where we just fold a piece of paper in half. And I encourage everybody who's a parent listening, like you can totally do this at home. It's really easy. Fold a piece of paper in half and you just name that experience like it's a book. So I would say like Hallie's book about uh, weaning at night, you know, night weaning, something that's challenging or a, a new transition. And the first page would say, Hallie really wants Chichita, you know, Hallie really wants to nurse at night. Mama said, no, Hallie feels sad. And I'm actually drawing the pictures along with her, you know, and so she'll bring me that book or she used to when she was weaning. She's eight years old, so she's not weaning anymore, luckily, but she used to bring me that book and say, read me this book. You know, this is my story. This is my experience. And now I'm finding her doing that with her two-year-old sister when things are hard. And it's so beautiful to see, you know, is, is that now we have this tool that not only I've been able to use, she's using it with her sister now. Um, and so it's just really, you know, it, it's, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work to really unpack it and, and peel back the layers of our own ego through this. But it's so worth it because I'm seeing the benefits of it even now. Yeah, I, I can't imagine the, man, I, as you were talking, I was thinking back to where I was emotionally at eight or nine. And I had nowhere near those kind of tools or that kind of language or capability. And so um, I'm having to go back now and, and learn some of that, right? And, and really do the hard work of giving myself empathy and recognizing what that means. And so I'm excited for for uh, how your children, you know, and my son as well, will, will be set up for success. You know, they'll have to do maybe a little less work or the journey won't be quite as arduous up front as, as maybe mine has been or yours has been. And that, that's, that's exciting to me. 
Yeah, yeah. It's a privilege too to be raised this way. You know, I feel like when we were talking about giving um, our children the empowerment to be able to wield this privilege, like sometimes she'll come to me and say like, oh, my little friend is acting in this way and they're being, you know, bossy. And, and we have this like activity in our classes where we do villains work. And mm -hmm. so we talk about villains and like bad guys, right? And what actually drove a villain to become a villain. And we really try to operate from this like, trauma-informed framework, which is not like what's wrong with you, but what happened to you. And so I'm really seeing that too, that she's really shifting that paradigm um, with the way that she's looking at her friends, you know, and really trying to have empathy, but also hold those boundaries and say, even though you are treating me in this way, I know my worth well enough that I'm not going to engage with you if you continue to step over my boundary, you know? And so um, there's just so many benefits to to really challenging the narratives that we were given as children and to engage in these practices with with us with ourselves mm -hmm. now um, and be able to give that as a gift to our children I just think is like the work yeah. you know yes it is the work um, challenging the narratives we were given when you said that I thought about narratives that maybe were consciously handed down to me at different points in my life. So let me step back and give some context so this will make sense. So the first eight or nine years of my life, um, I lived with my uh, first my biological dad and, and mom and then my stepdad and biological mom. Um, and they were characterized by some really intense uh, abuse, physical and emotional, um, by pretty significant poverty um, and by neglect. And then when I was nine, uh, my siblings and I went into foster care and were later adopted um, by a, a middle-class white family. And that's kind of when our life turned around completely. You know, for the first time we were in a loving environment, we had a chance to kind of begin to heal and to, to come into ourselves. Um, and so I, I had two very distinct uh, parenting experiences, at least two anyway. But as I think about the messages I was given, um, I'm, I'm also aware that there were messages that maybe I wasn't overtly given but that as a kid I interpreted the only way I knew how and mm. and the work I'm doing now is in identifying what those messages are and how they're still operating and because I, I find it, it's it's even harder to find those and unpack them so that I can give myself empathy um, and so this leads me to the question um, of what what your journey into self empathy has been like, and um, and where where it gets sticky for you? Are there specific moments, or specific narratives that that you just have a really hard time kind of opening to empathy in in your own life? Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much for that question. Um, I've had to do a lot of being very honest about the harm that was done. Um, and I think that's challenging for us in Latinx families because we hold this value of respecting our elders so dear and near to us. Um, but it was really clear to me that I think around the time I was like nine or 10, my parents had split up. Um, it was really chaotic. I had a brand new little sister. I was basically parenting her from the age of 10. My mom was not emotionally mentally able to, she, she was, just wasn't there, you know, she was there, but she wasn't there at all. Um, and so I had to, you know, some people say like some kids had to grow up at a very early age. And that was definitely me where I had to take a lot of responsibility. Um, and it, that felt extremely overwhelming for me. Um, but it also made it very clear that I couldn't rely upon my family. You know, it was very, evident I think by the time I was like 12 or 13 that my family could not meet the needs 
And yet it was painful, you know, and I still wanted others to be able to soothe me. You know, I still wanted my mom to be able to be that mother figure, still wanted my dad to be able to be present. And I couldn't open up to them because it wasn't safe, right? And so I would have these experiences with friends where I would also open up and maybe they would be able to hold it, maybe they wouldn't. I mean, we were teenagers, so, you know, to expect your teenage friends to really like be your therapist was, was a lot, right? Um, and so, I mean, I started cutting and like trying to, to gain attention in, in other ways. And so I think by the time I was like, 18, 19, I was just really ready to get out. <laughs> you know, it was just really like, I have been through a lot and I want to get out. And so uh, my husband and I started dating when I was 19. This was 13 years ago. Um, and so I've been finding myself just in the last even 13 years is still relying or attempting to rely on others to meet these very primal needs of mine you know, and I've had to be really honest with myself and think, is this fair to the people that I'm in relationship with? Is it fair for my, for me to expect my husband to be validating, you know, of all of my emotions? Is it fair for me to think that he's going to save me from this pain that still very much comes up? And I've been through, I mean, I think my first relationship with a therapist was when I was about nine or 10 and my parents were going through um, a divorce and my third grade teacher like noticed that something had shifted. And so I've been in and out of therapy for since I was nine years old and still like, and still there are wounds, you know, and still this aching, hurting little girl of eight, nine years of 12, 13 years, like will come up. Um, and so I have found that like the inner child work is never ending. And I've gotten really frustrated with that fact, you know, and thought, God, I've already dealt with this. Like I've already, <laughs> I've already had this trigger. Like, can it just please go away? And so, I think something that has that has really helped me is to to not think of this healing process as having an end, and just knowing that it's a constant practice. You know, and there there are traumas that I won't go into in here, but there are things that have been coming up just since my daughter has turned eight and nine. You know, and this is when. This is when a lot of that stuff happened. And so I'm like, whoa, like, where did that come from? You know, like, where did this wound suddenly show up? Um, and how? And how can I tend to that lovingly, you know, without expecting my loved ones to hold it for me, but then also allowing me to get the support that I need, you know, and, and allowing myself to be vulnerable and having the conversations with therapists or with mentors, um, and really demanding that I have a safe space without expecting anybody to fix it for me. So I think that that's kind of where I am. And that's, um, you know, again, like I just, I had to be very honest and say, yeah, that, that created a lot of damage. You know, a lot of that created a lot of harm, a lot of damage. And now I can come in as a loving, responsible adult to myself and really work on healing, you know, and be responsible for myself. 
um, and own my actions. And even like this morning, I was telling my husband, I was like, I'm just hormonal. You don't understand. I'm on, you know, yeah. I'm like, <laughs> I'm trying. <laughs> and he's just like, well, you need to like, you need to do something about that, you know? And I'm just like, no, you need to do something about that. And he's like, no. And luckily, like, <laughs> he's, he is very much like, no, you need to, you, you know, there's work to be done. And, and I mean, we're that for each other. It's not just like him looking at me, like you're the damaged one. Like we are both doing our own work. Mm -hmm. Um, and I find our relationship very healing, but there's definitely times where I'm just like, I am triggered and I don't know where it's coming from. It's just in my body, you know? And that's the, that's the second part of it too, is that when I'm talking to parents and they're like, well, I don't, I don't know why I get triggered when this happens, you know, like, I don't know where it comes from, but suddenly I feel tightness or I feel like, um, I clench my jaw or, you know, I start to get a stomach ache. And a lot of these experiences that we had may not even be from when we had conscious memory of them. And on top of that, it may not even be within our lifetime, <laughs> you know, because ancestral trauma is very, very real. And so we have wounds that we're carrying that are energetic wounds um, from a long history. I think there's like a quote that's like, you know, everything that's happening now, like has a mark of like eight or nine generations back. Um, and so being really compassionate with ourselves, like we were talking about, is a huge part of it you know and saying like yes this this is real and this happened but i'm not defined by it anymore yeah mm. thank you first of all for uh, your vulnerability i i genuinely appreciate that um you don't have to offer that so so just thank you for offering that and as you named it i found i was finding points in my life where i really relate um especially the part about that inner child needing to be soothed that that hit home for me and I've never I've named it a lot of ways I don't think I've named it like that uh, and so I, I thank you for that language that was super helpful um, as the oldest child it fell to me to try to take care of my younger siblings when my parents stepped out or, or, or whatever um, or I felt the responsibility to protect um, and so as a result I felt like an increased burden and that lack of, you know, parental comfort that I should have had when I was that age. And so, yeah, I, I experienced that. And I, as I think back, now that I'm older and I look back at my past relationships, I can see with friends, with family, where I have expected others to, to do that soothing work, right? Um, and I, I'm now aware of it enough where I, I can usually catch it as it's happening, right? And remind myself that this is this is work I can now do, right? It doesn't have to come from an external source, but but it's still really hard. You know, when you're in the midst of that trigger, it's hard to to notice it and then kind of reorient yourself. Um, but but it's super super important work. So yeah, thank you for for naming that. It definitely caused some reflection within me. Yeah. Yeah, I relate to that, like, responsibility, too, you know, just, like, we're, we don't have time to feel. Like, we're too busy fixing things for others, you know, we're too busy being that container for other people. We were not given that container, but now we have to be this container for other people. And I think that it does us a disservice if we now don't be vulnerable enough to actually demand, again, like, demand the support you know, and really empower ourselves too. And I think that for us, like as people of color and, and in Latinx culture, like my parents still don't believe 
a lot of times in like mental health support and therapy and my dad is like you know that's for people who are weak or whatever and and so there's a lot of stigma and a lot of barriers that we have to overcome um but again like it's not just healing our lineages and it's not just healing the narratives for our children but it's healing our ancestry you know, and it's really, it's really challenging us to, um, to engage in really deep healing work and taking responsibility um, in a gentle way. Because it, it sounds like, oh my gosh, no, I have to take responsibility, you know, and that sometimes can be like another must yep. um, and another form of power over, over us. Like you need to heal this, you know, rather than just like, no, it's actually a practice of being gentle with ourselves. Yes. You know, it's a practice of acknowledging um, that we are still that inner child, that we can reparent ourselves, that we are not going to get it right 100% of the time. You know, if, we, if we're coming to a parenting class and we're thinking that after these six weeks or whatever, everything's going to be like perfect and I'm going to like not have wounds and triggers anymore. Like that's just such a myth, you know, that's such a myth. And that that uh, reminds me of something that I, I don't know if you said or if I saw you post maybe on social media um last week, but it was about doing this work of nonviolent parenting in the midst of this pandemic, right? You are not going to get it right. And so offering yourself grace. So can you can you talk about um, how how to orient ourselves appropriately so that we're still trying to do this work that we firmly believe in for ourselves and our families, but also offering ourselves grace when we do make the inevitable mistakes that we're going to make? Yeah, I think it's extremely difficult right now. I think it's extremely difficult. And I also, I think that this is a perfect opportunity to practice that nonviolence because it's rooted in that self-empathy. And so we're going to fuck up. This is a traumatizing time for so many of us. Um, And it is stirring up wounds that were already there, you know? And so, yes, it's going to be that much more difficult to practice nonviolence. And at the same time, it is a perfect opportunity should we engage in supportive community, you know, and, and in, um, in the classes, you know, I've kind of created this model of what it takes to really be able to be in alignment with how we want to parent. And at the root of it is reflection, right? Constant reflection. Where does my behavior come from? Where do, where do my children's behaviors come from? You know, a lot of friends of mine are experiencing their children either regressing or having really intense emotions. Mm. Um, and so I honor that for them and I honor that for all of us who are experiencing this, um, but really rooting back into that reflection, you know, really, really trying to, to understand not only like where their behavior is coming from, but where our emotions and where our feelings and, and where our new and unique needs are coming from. Um, and then resetting our intentions. And again, at the beginning of this, before we started recording, I said, you know, I'm just taking it 15 minutes at a time. Yeah. <laughs> like it's just, it's just 15, if I could just get through the next 15 minutes. Um, and so, you know, rooting in that reflection and then setting that new intention of just getting through the next 15 minutes and giving ourselves as much grace as possible. That's nonviolence. You know, nonviolence isn't just not being violent. It's really just that process of repair with ourselves so that we can repair with our children, you know, and that connection actually that in, in the repair that I do with my daughter after I mess up, like that deepens our connection, 
you know, that actually helps to strengthen the relationship that we have because now she's able to see that I'm a human being and what do human beings do after they mess up, which we all do, we repair, you know, we repair and we allow ourselves the space to feel our feelings. And she's caught me crying, you know, a bunch of times. She's like, mommy, I want to fix it for you. And oh, she doesn't say that, but she like, you know, I can see that she really wants to be that. And I'm like, I am going to be okay. Like, you don't have to hold this for me, you know, like I, I can hold it. Um, and so it's just such a, such a layered and, and complex process. But I think ultimately it's really calling for us to practice a lot of gentleness with ourselves um because again we're gonna mess up you know it's just it's not it's not an if it's a when (laughs) yeah you know and so some of us are really supported and have partners but i also think about the single mamas out there the single dads out there that don't have a support system um or people that are living in um you know, multi-generational homes and are caring for their children while also caring for their elders and are their elders actually self-quarantining or that, you know, now we're reparenting our parents. And so there's so many layers to it. So again, the practice is the being gentle with ourselves, engaging in empathy with ourselves, rerouting ourselves back in that reflection, whatever that looks like for us. I've recently started to um, just like record voice memos to myself, you know, And at first it was like, this is kind of weird. Like I'm just literally talking to myself, but I don't have time to journal. So I'm like, I'm just going to pick up my phone and like press record and see what happens. Um, So, you know, these are just little, little bits because it is hard to remember to breathe in the moment. We're not in a place in our brain where we can even have access to the tools that we've learned. You know, I've, I freaking teach these tools and I still don't, like, I still don't, Mm -hmm. I still don't have complete access to them a hundred percent of the time. Um, And so that repair and that gentle practice is going to have to be, you know, as often as we need it. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a, that's a good reminder that regardless of your circumstance and situation, it's, it's possible to access and utilize these tools, right? Like, yes, obviously it, it helps if you have a supportive co-parent or if you live in a house with family members that are supporting you. Um, but even if you're not, even if, you know, you, you, don't, you literally don't have time to stop and do what you know is your ideal yeah. self-care, you can find moments or, or reminders. My, um, my spiritual director this week uh, reminded me to just take small moments that would create these keyholes that would let a little bit of light in, right? And I think that's what's called for in this time. It's not perfection. Perfection is honestly never called for. That's that's bullshit. Um, what's called for are are to let the light in, right? And if we can only let a little bit in, a little bit's better yeah. than none, right? And 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 that that's going to bring a little bit of healing, a little bit of warmth, a little bit of comfort to our souls. That is going to prepare us for when we have more bandwidth and more space and can do the work more yeah. extensively. Um, and I think that's just an important reminder for I think all of yeah, us. Yeah, I love that. I love that so much. Just let a little bit of light in. You know, it's been kind of cloudy out here. So I feel like, you know, nature has been reflecting that. This morning, my husband was like, come outside. The sun is shining through the clouds for like five seconds. And I was like, okay, and let it just like fill my face, you know, just fill my face with sunshine for five seconds. And like, that's good enough. And I'm just going to be grateful for yeah. that little bit in that moment. Um, but yeah, it's a challenge. You know, it's, it's, it's a lot to hold. It is. It is. Um there are so many more questions I could ask. I want to be mindful of your time, though. So um, I uh, will wrap this up 
with two different uh, questions. The first is I like to give my guests a chance uh, to ask me a question if they want to. Some get an odd kick out of that, <laughs> others don't. Um, so I want to give you a moment. If there's a question that you'd like to ask me, um, we can take it and, and ask it here. And if there's not, that's fine. I have a question for you that I love to ask every adult that asks me to ask them a question. So what were you like as a child? Um, you could use like three or four adjectives to describe yourself as a child, just to reconnect a little then. <laughs> What was I like as a child? Okay, three to four adjectives. I was, and still am, small, um, high-strung, anxious, and curious. Curious. Uh, the curiosity uh, came to me. I was thinking about my love for playing in the woods and in trees. Like Whenever I see trees specifically, it's just like my imagination opens up and I think about all the things a tree can do, right? Um, the ways in which trees are rooted firmly and offer shelter, the ways in which they provide um, like a mini ecosystem for the, the many organisms that are housed there, the ways in which they can be like a jungle gym for a, a group of kids climbing on them, the sap they produce to fix toys, like trees just amaze me. Um, but I also, from an early age, remember like thinking about and questioning systems. I had this distinct memory of riding in the car with my adoptive parents for some reason, I might have been 11 or 12, and I was questioning the morality of the death penalty. And mind you, I grew up in a conservative Christian home, and so that was not a question, a discussion that we could really have. But for whatever reason, like it was on my mind, and I remember having like or trying to have an engaging discussion with them about it. It got shut down pretty quickly, but but like at an early age, my curiosity would take me to those kinds of places. Um, that's a fun. Thank you for that question. It's fun to see the the lines of connection between your childhood self and and who you are today. Yeah, yeah. I think um, one of the things that we do in our classes, I really encourage people to have like pictures of themselves as children all around the house. Mm. Usually, it's our children, you know. Yeah. But it's no, actually, our children are our, ourselves as children are still very present within us. So let's honor, you know, who that child was and and the ways that they showed up to keep us safe. Yeah, yeah wonderful. Thank you, Leslie. Um, and I like to wrap each interview up with um, my guest offering the audience some small practice or um, intention that they can give so that that will tie together the themes that we've spoken about. So if we think about what it means to parent nonviolently, to do inner child work, to offer ourselves empathy, is there a practice or an intention you'd offer the audience that they can hold for two to ten minutes each day after this episode airs? Yeah, I think it's going to be just the grounding back into the reflection and asking what is my inner child needing in this moment? You know, what is being called for right now? Is it rest? Is it a loving affirmation? Is it play? Um, is it to say I'm angry? I'm scared. You know, and so I think just the practice is what is my inner child? What is little Leslie? What is little Ben asking for right now to try to meet that need for ourselves? Because it's what our children are asking for also, you know? And so I think as we are starting to meet our own needs that were not met in childhood, we'll be able to start meeting them for our kids. Yeah, phenomenal. Thank you for that. Uh, if people want to connect with you and your work, I know a lot of it is centered in California, but I believe you're expanding and offering work across the, the country now. So how can they connect with you and what might they want to investigate or check out that you're offering? 
Yeah, so a lot of the content that I'm producing right now is via Instagram, so they can find us on Instagram at Latinx Parenting. Um, and I am developing workshops right now. I'm trying to see how workable it would be to offer ongoing um, support because I know that that's really needed right now. Um, and we just finished up a reparenting uh, workshop. It was called Criándome, Cuidándome. So raising myself, nourishing myself or nurturing myself. Um, workshop. And so that actually is going to pair with an eight-week series that I'm going to be holding um, beginning mid-May. And so if anybody wants to continue doing the inner child work, um, the reparenting ourselves work, that's going to be a place for education, but mostly practice um, of some of the concepts that we talked about. So that's happening in mid-May. And then, yeah, there's just, there's going to be more, more popping. Mm. <laughs> Exciting. And for folks yeah. that aren't part of the Latinx community, uh, will they still find value in your offerings? Yeah, absolutely. We have a lot of, you know, on the website, you'll see too, that we say that this is for Latinx families and our allies, because a lot of people have asked, like, how can we support? Um, and there are like therapists out there and, and teachers that are working with the Latinx community. And so I feel like we're, we're a value for, um, for anybody. But, you know, of course, my heart is with the Latinx community. As it should be. <laughs> As it should be. Yes. <laughs> Thank you again for your time, Leslie. I appreciate it. Thank you, Ben. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Invisible Truths podcast. To learn more information about Latinx parenting or to find out what events they have coming up, click on the links in the episode description. That's where you'll find their website as well as their social media accounts. And I strongly encourage you to follow them on social media, particularly Instagram, because they put out some really relatable and approachable content that offers good reminders, not only for those of us that are parenting, but for those of us that are just trying to do the best that we can. And if you heard nothing else from this episode, I hope you take away the reality that within each of us, there is an inner child. That inner child is still trying to get the needs met that were never fulfilled long ago. And that means that some days we're going to screw up. Some days we're going to make mistakes and we're not going to get it right. And on those days, it is vitally important that we're gentle with ourselves, that we practice self-care, self-love, and self-empathy. And so I hope as you go through the week, whenever you notice your inner child coming up, that you take a moment and ask it what it needs and then offer it some grace. Once you've done that, I think it becomes much easier to offer grace to our partners, to our family members, and most of all, to our children. Once again, thanks for listening to this week's episode of the Invisible Truths Podcast. Until next week, I'm Ben Tapper.